1: It's been almost eight months since Russian tanks rolled across the border into Ukraine. Since the very first weeks of the war, Russian officials have made threats that their already devastating attacks could one day get even worse with the use of nuclear weapons. In May, the state-owned television channel Russia One played simulations of nuclear missiles obliterating the British Isles. Just one launch, said the presenter, and England is gone. Recently, the threats have taken on an even more sinister tone. After Vladimir Putin annexed some occupied territories in Ukraine, he proclaimed that Russia would defend these lands using, quote, all means at its disposal. America's president, Joe Biden, has compared the situation today to the Cuban Missile Crisis, which played out 60 years ago. I call upon Chairman Khrushchev to haul and eliminate this clandestine, reckless
0: and provocative threat to world peace.
1: When you think of a nuclear bomb, you're probably thinking of the massive weapons that could destroy an entire city, like those dropped by American forces on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan in 1945. But the war in Ukraine has brought a different category of nuclear weapon into public view. Battlefield or tactical nuclear bombs. As devastating and dangerous as the traditional type of bomb, but much easier to deploy. So how do tactical nuclear weapons work? And if they were used, how much damage might they cause? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist's science correspondent. Today we'll look at how nuclear weapons are designed and why they cause so much devastation. If a modern tactical nuclear bomb were deployed on the battlefields of Ukraine, what would the impact be? I'll also ask The Economist's defense editor how likely this is to actually happen.
2: A nuclear weapon depends on both nuclear fission and nuclear fusion.
1: Cheryl Rofer spent more than three decades as a nuclear scientist at the Los Alamos National Laboratory, America's top nuclear weapons facility.
2: The fission is the splitting apart of usually uranium atoms, but also plutonium atoms, and the fusion is the combining of different sorts of hydrogen atoms, and both processes release a lot of energy.
1: What springs to mind when you think about nuclear bombs, of course, for most people, is the end of the Second World War, the mushroom clouds over Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan. And that's the sort of culmination of the project to build those bombs at at that time. But where did the idea behind atomic weapons come from, and how were they made in the first place?
2: In the first half of the 20th century, there was a lot of research into the structure of atoms. And in the 1930s, there were a number of experiments done. And eventually, the interpretation was that uranium atoms had actually been split in these experiments. And there was a lot of energy coming out. If you have a lot of uranium atoms in one place, and you cause them all to split at the same time, or very close to the same time, then you would get really a lot of energy.
1: Okay, so that was the basic nuclear physics being discovered in the first half of the 20th century. Then how did that turn into a weapon?
2: Well, once you made that discovery, it was pretty obvious that you could make a really destructive weapon. And of course, then we had the Second World War. Some people in the United States persuaded Albert Einstein to write a letter to Franklin Roosevelt. There were others working in the government who said, we really need this And the result was the Manhattan Project and the bombs over Hiroshima and Nagasaki.
1: Well, let's talk about the science of these bombs created in the Manhattan Project and subsequently as well. What makes a nuclear bomb different to a conventional bomb in terms of its destructive potential?
2: Basically, a conventional bomb relies on chemical energy And an atomic bomb or hydrogen bomb relies on fission, fusion energy. There are orders of magnitude difference in those types of energy. And that's the difference in the destructive power of the two
1: types of bombs. And of course, the explosion in a conventional bomb is all to do with breaking molecular bonds, i.e. the bonds between atoms themselves, whereas... Nuclear reactions, they either split or fuse the nuclei of atoms. That's the central bits of atoms. And of course, the energy stored in the nucleus is orders of magnitude higher than the energy between atoms and between molecules. Right. But as you say, there are fission and fusion reactions that are possible with nuclei. Um, What process did the early nuclear bombs use? The
2: two bombs dropped on Japan were fission bombs. But during the Manhattan Project, there was a lot of discussion about how nuclear fusion could also be used in a weapon. So the first experiment to build a fusion device was done by the United States on some of the South Sea islands, and it was wildly successful, and ever since then, Nuclear weapons, at least by the major powers, have been both fission and fusion.
1: How much more powerful were these fusion bombs, the hydrogen bombs, compared to the very first atomic bombs?
2: Thousands of times. They were enormous. At one point, I heard from Harold Agnew, who was there for the Castle Bravo shot, which was unexpectedly powerful. He was far back from the explosion in an observation post, and he said it just kept getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And Harold was not a person who was easily shook, but you could hear that he was shook at that time when he was watching that test. The Castle Bravo shot was thousands of times what? the Nagasaki and Hiroshima bombs were. And of course, each of them destroyed a city and killed hundreds of thousands of people.
1: So you could imagine one of those bombs, if it was dropped over a place like New York City or Los Angeles, those cities would be under mortal peril.
2: Oh, yes. One of our typical hydrogen bombs today would destroy a large part of New York City or Los Angeles.
1: We've been talking about the American projects. What was going on in the Soviet Union during the Cold War II? What did they get to in terms of size and capacity?
2: In the early 50s, the Soviet Union built and tested a bomb that was 50 megatons. And it just literally blew the top off a mountain when they tested it. Sar Bama was so big, there's just no real comparison. It's hard for us to envision the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, although we have photographs to give us some sense of that. But I honestly don't know any comparison I could give for Sarbamba that would make it understandable. I have a hard time envisioning some of these things. I've looked at overhead pictures of where Sarabamba was dropped, and there's a really big stretch of land that is still today, what, 50, 60 years later, it's still just wiped out. It's just down to rock.
1: So that's why uh, nuclear weapons have this strategic importance. I mean, no one's ever going to use them because they're so destructive. If we turn to the situation today, though, with the war going on in Ukraine, how do the weapons that you've just been talking about relate to the conversations people having about whether Vladimir Putin is going to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine?
2: What is mostly being talked about there is tactical nuclear weapons or also called non-strategic nuclear weapons, and there are arguments about what to call them. I prefer battlefield nuclear weapons because they are packaged in a way that they can be used on the battlefield in terms of yields, in terms of destructive power. They tend to be smaller than the nuclear weapons that are on missiles and are based in, for the United States, uh, our northern states like Montana and Wyoming. But smaller is only a relative term. And in fact, these battlefield tactical non-strategic nuclear weapons are about as large as the weapons that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in terms of destructive power.
1: So they're not the sort of mountaintop blowing bombs for the purposes of mutually assured destruction. They're something different. And is the underlying physics in a battlefield nuclear weapon or a tactical nuclear weapon Any different to the sort of big strategic weapons of the Cold War era? Nope.
2: (laughs) (laughs) They're
1: they're, they're all about the same. (laughs) Okay, how, how do those fission and fusion combination bombs actually work then?
2: What happens over the course of milliseconds is that first the fission bomb explodes. That provides the heat and pressure that are necessary to make the hydrogen isotopes fuse. So first is the fission, and that's why sometimes people call the plutonium parts of the bomb the trigger, but it's a pretty big trigger. I mean, this is a trigger about the size of the Hiroshima bomb in terms of effects. So first you have fission and then you have fusion, but it all happens within a second.
1: Okay, so the heavy elements split first, release their energy, and then that energy allows the lighter elements, i.e., the hydrogen isotopes, to fuse and, right. and release even more energy. Right. What kinds of weaponry might be amenable to sort of delivering these sorts of bombs?
2: The United States tactical nuclear weapons, of which we only have maybe 200, we gave up most of our tactical nuclear weapons as a show of goodwill to Gorbachev back in 1991. But the remaining ones are airdropped bombs. They're about six feet long and about a foot, foot and a half in diameter. Russia has a greater variety and greater number of tactical nuclear weapons, and so some of them might be put on cruise missiles, for example, like some of the missiles that Russia has been sending to Ukraine this past week. But there are other possibilities. There have been nuclear mines, for example, like the mines that are used against ships, and mines that could be placed in the ground that have been designed in the past.
1: So in some sense, they look much more like conventional weapons.
2: Yes, and that is a danger because when you've got a cruise missile coming in, there's no way to look at that cruise missile and say whether it has a conventional
1: or a nuclear warhead. So how would the country know that it's been attacked with a nuclear warhead then? What would be the sort of first signs of that? Nuclear weapons
2: have a distinctive seismic signature. This is one of the things we look for when we are thinking that North Korea, for example, might have done an underground nuclear test. The seismic signal will have two peaks. So once there is an explosion, You can tell if it's a nuclear explosion. Also, just watching the explosion, there's an extremely bright flash of light. It would register on Geiger counters and other types of nuclear equipment in the area. So, once there's an explosion, it's easy to tell if it's nuclear.
1: But the point is by the time you're figuring out whether or not a nuclear weapon has been launched it's too late the level of destruction wrought by tactical nuclear weapons doesn't only depend on the size of the bombs there are a number of additional factors like whether they're detonated on the ground or in the air and if it is in the air at what height plus after the heat and blast of the explosion itself There are secondary impacts, like radiation and fallout. The weather can also play a role in determining which areas will be affected in the medium and long term. Someone who knows a lot about all of this is Patricia Lewis. She's a nuclear physicist and a security specialist at Chatham House, a think tank in London.
3: One single weapon could destroy a large part of a city, depending on how you use it where you explode it. And if you think about that, it's completely different to the sorts of weapons that we've seen being used so far in Russia's attack on Ukraine, where we've seen conventional weapons destroy a whole block of flats, for example, but this would destroy the whole downtown area, right? Even a so-called tactical nuclear weapon could do that.
1: One of the things that people, I guess, who are not experts, worry about when it comes to nuclear weapons, as well as the destructive potential, is the radiation. I just wonder what impacts those would have on people or living things in the immediate vicinity.
3: So there's two main forms of radiation. There's there's the initial light flash, which can cause all sorts of eye damage. And then there's what's called the prompt radiation, which is the immediate release of X-rays and neutrons primarily that leave the actual explosion. And then you have these X-rays and neutrons creating radioactive debris through nuclear processes in the stuff that's sucked up from the blast. I think people get very carried away with the radiation, but the actual massive death and injury is caused from the blast and the heat, and the heat generates enormous fires. They have a huge impact on human life and all other vegetation and other life in the area. Then, as you rightly say, people have been worrying for a long time about the radioactive debris, the mushroom cloud that goes up into the atmosphere. And that, of course, means that it then becomes an area-wide impact where the weather, depending on the weather patterns, take it quite a long way away and then can of course rain down on another area and we've seen how that radioactive cloud can go a long way and cause long-term damage so the radioactive isotopes that then get spread around get ingested by life forms and some of those isotopes can cause radiation poisoning straight away and then some of them of course can have longer-term impacts in that it can later cause cancer chromosomal damage and and so on.
1: So that longer-term effect the radiation poisoning you said how significant is that?
3: So it really depends on lots of things so for example it depends on your gender so women are more affected by radiation than men in terms of long-term cancers and health effects. Children are more affected than adults, and that's to do with the rate of change of cellular divide. And it depends as well on the type of isotopes. So the ones that we tend to worry about are the ones that are quite predominant in our body and that don't get flushed out very easily. Thyroid uptake of radioactive iodine, for example, bone uptake of radioactive strontium, for example, there's radioactive cesium that can get easily absorbed into the body and sit there for a long time. And that's where you get the radiation causing cellular damage that then leads to cellular mutations, which leads to cancer. And there's always been concerns to whether or not, for example, chromosomal damage, as we've seen around the test sites, could then lead to birth defects and so on. That's uh, research that's much harder to measure, but there's certainly enough evidence to give quite a lot of cause for
1: concern. Is it comparable to the kinds of effects that were seen longer term after the Chernobyl accident? Um, I mean, I know that they're they're different things. Uh, One's a bomb and one was a meltdown of a nuclear reactor. But I just wonder in terms of the longer term effects on health, are they comparable?
3: There are different ratios of isotopes and different isotopes are produced. And the bomb is generally far worse than a reactor incident. And as I said, I have to caveat this because it really depends where you explode it and how you explode it but if we look at an air burst that causes a large updraft which causes a radioactive cloud then the types of isotopes that you'd see in that many of them would be short term they'd be almost gone before you'd know it but it's a significant amount and the whole range of isotopes that you'd see in there that would be much worse than what we saw coming out from Chernobyl. And I should say as well, the impact of the fire in Chernobyl, terrible that it was, was nowhere near as bad as the explosion of a nuclear weapon. And I think people think about the radioactive debris in the cloud, but they don't think about the immediate destruction, including the prompt radiation, which caused so much radiation sickness. We tend to put that aside. And it's partly because there are very few people survived to tell the tale. There are very few doctors And that's the other thing for us to understand in this situation. The International Committee of the Red Cross, for example, have done a big study on what they would do in the event of the use of nuclear weapon, and they would not go in to assess because it would be far too dangerous for their workers. And most of the big medical, non-governmental organizations say the same thing. So you would have a situation in which you would be left to fend for yourself. The hospitals would be gone. The water supply, probably highly damaged, unable to operate, no electricity, no communications, and people wouldn't go in to assist. We have to get that into our heads, and that's what makes it such a different scenario in the event of an explosion than you would get with a conventional explosive.
1: I mean, that picture you've painted of a place being destroyed, but also not being able to be helped. I mean, that's, that's an incredibly dark image, isn't it?
3: Yes, and, and also, if you think about it militarily, you can't take the territory then, can you? You've, you've poisoned it. You've created the, this radioactive wasteland, and you know, the only way you could go in to take the territory would be in protective clothing, etc. So what would be the whole point of doing that in, in that sense? If you're looking to take territory, they're not good weapons for that.
1: How long would an area that's been bombed in this way, how long would it remain dangerous in terms of the radiation? And how long before external actors could go in to either help or do whatever else?
3: Yeah, well, that's a really good question. So again, it depends on the type of explosion, where and how. But if you look at a typical airburst over a city, what you must understand is it's not linear. It's an explosive, so it's spherical in terms of the impact if you double the, the size, it doesn't mean you get double the impact. So that's really important to be aware of. But the way in which it's used, it's if we look at a typical airburst, sort of near enough to the ground to cause this very large shock wave and reflection shock wave, and then the updraft of the debris, and the prompt radiation, I think you're probably talking a few weeks before radiation levels would fall to a level that with protective clothing, you might be able to go in. And if you're looking at cleanup of radioactive debris, that can be decades, right? Depending where the debris also falls. So if it stays in the area, that of course makes the area even worse and some of it will fall there. I mean, if you look at Marilingo, which is an area in Australia, which was used for nuclear weapons tests. It's taken decades to clean that up. The French test site in Algeria, in Mororoa, they're not cleaned up and they're still highly radioactive. Some of those isotopes that will be left will be very long living and could last if they're not cleaned up thousands of years.
1: There's no question that using nuclear weapons of any size would be catastrophic. These bombs have the ability to inflict serious, irreversible damage in war zones. During the Cold War, one saving grace was the nuclear taboo. The idea that using nuclear weapons would lead the world into an irreversible, tragic path of mutually assured destruction. For decades, that prevented an all-out war between countries with nuclear weapons. However, the communications between those countries are nowadays not as clear and open as they once were. Coming up, would Vladimir Putin really break the nuclear taboo on the battlefields of Ukraine? Today on Babbage, we've been exploring tactical or battlefield nuclear weapons. How would the war in Ukraine change
4: course if they were used? How would Russia even deploy them? There's basically three ways they could use tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine or around Ukraine.
1: Shashank Joshi is The Economist's defence editor and he's been
4: leading our coverage of the Russian invasion. One of them would be a demonstration strike. In other words, a strike not intended to destroy anything or anyone, but just to show that Russia is willing to use nuclear weapons. The scenario that some people have raised is a strike on a remote place such as Ukraine's Snake Island, perhaps over international waters in the Black Sea to the south of Ukraine, something that wouldn't actually destroy any buildings, any people, any military forces, anything like that. The second option is a military strike, a battlefield strike for battlefield advantage. That could be a strike on troops, tanks, command posts, bunkers, that kind of thing. It is worth noting this was the main purpose of tactical nuclear weapons during the Cold War. But they did eventually realize that the battlefield advantages of this were somewhat limited because, first of all, you irradiated the entire battlefield. And then, of course, you had to fight through it. And the second problem is you actually have to use a lot of these things to make a big difference. So, for instance, if you take a five kiloton tactical nuclear bomb, that's about a third of the bomb dropped on Hiroshima, you would take out, according to some estimates, maybe 13 tanks if they were dispersed. So that's a fairly limited effect. And then the third sort of target is... A political one or a government one. So that could, for example, be a Ukrainian city or or a government headquarters inside a city that would still take a significant chunk of that city out. Or, of course, targets outside of Ukraine. But I think in the most case, we're looking at things inside the area of battle.
1: And is it possible to say how useful any of these different types of tactics might be in terms of the military strategy that Russia is trying to deploy?
4: I think it's safe to say that none of them are going to militarily change the course of the war. They're not going to stop Ukraine's advance in its tracks. They might make it more difficult and indeed Ukraine would have to have lots of what we call chemical biological radiological and nuclear CBRN kit you know protective gear protective vehicles special techniques to disperse all of those things to be able to fight through a nuclear battlefield but these tactics are not going to necessarily stop an actual military advance of the kind that Ukraine is making and indeed Ukraine soldiers are fighting in quite a dispersed way they're not concentrating in huge numbers in the way that would make them particularly vulnerable to a nuclear strike And therefore, I think, Alok, the most important thing to remember is the primary mechanism by which any nuclear strike is going to make an impact on this war is going to be psychological and political. The impact it has on the perceptions and calculus of Ukrainian decision makers and those in the West who are providing it with arms and assistance.
1: Okay, so let's think about how NATO and the West might respond to something like this. Do you think that there's a risk of escalation?
4: There's undoubtedly a huge risk of escalation, Alok, and that's because if there was a US-led conventional military strike in Ukraine in response to Russian nuclear use, it wouldn't necessarily stop there. Russia wouldn't go, oh, OK, you you struck us. We'll stop now. They might then strike back, perhaps against the US Navy, perhaps against NATO territory. That would invoke NATO's Article 5 collective defense clause. And you would be in a state of general war between NATO and Russia, the exact situation that the Biden administration worked so hard to avoid. And that, in turn, then generates the risk of strategic nuclear use, not tactical nuclear use against battlefield targets, but strategic weapons weapons against cities, population centres and other bigger targets.
1: In this sort of escalation ladder that you're talking about then, uh, I mean, are there circumstances where NATO countries themselves might retaliate using their own tactical nuclear weapons
4: themselves? Some countries have ruled it out. Last week, we saw President Emmanuel Macron of France say that French fundamental interests would not be directly affected at all, he said, if, for instance, there was a ballistic nuclear attack in Ukraine. So, He ruled it out. But others have been more ambiguous. The UK hasn't said anything. And America has publicly said that there would be catastrophic consequences if Russia used nuclear weapons, which is a phrase that could imply lots of things, including nuclear retaliation. But in practice... I think it's very clear the general expectation, the consensus, is that we would see a conventional military attack against Russian forces, perhaps Russian forces in Ukraine rather than a nuclear attack. And that makes sense. There's effectively two reasons for that. One of them is that if you can do the job with conventional weapons, why would you use nuclear weapons for all the drawbacks we've mentioned over the course of this show – Conventional weapons can still be incredibly deadly, even if they don't have the same stigma or the association of abhorrence as nuclear ones do. But also, if Russia has just broken the nuclear taboo and made itself a pariah, I think Vladimir Putin would also risk losing what is left of his diplomatic partnerships, particularly with countries that have supported him economically by buying his oil or by facilitating trade. Countries like China and India why then would you also break the taboo for the second time since 1945 and then vacate the moral high ground you've just occupied in order to isolate Russia? So I think all in all, it's very unlikely we'd see a nuclear response to Russian nuclear use, unless, of course, Russia used nuclear weapons against NATO itself. Just zooming out a bit,
1: is there anything different about the war in Ukraine that makes the use of nuclear weapons more likely? Or or is this just another case that the world is on the edge, and we just don't know what's going to happen.
4: We don't know what's going to happen. We could say that this is perhaps more tied up with the fate of the leader of Russia than many of those other conflicts. In a democracy, if you lose a war, you get kicked out of office. It's bad, but that's okay. In Russia, if Putin loses this war, it might be his life that's on the line. He has a lot of enemies. He has no escape valves. He has no obvious successes. He has shut down all avenues of dissent and opposition. So that backs him into a corner. And therefore, I think President Joe Biden is right when he says this is the moment of maximum nuclear danger since the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. It doesn't mean we have to be paralysed by fear and stop supporting Ukraine and give up and capitulate and hand over 15% of Ukrainian land to Russia. But it does mean I think we have to be mindful of these risks and very, very cautious as we move forward.
1: It's obviously really important to sort of consider these problems when it comes to the use of nuclear weapons, but people are fixated upon it. I wonder how much of a distraction you think it is considering what's actually going
4: on on the ground right now? It's not a distraction in that we must keep an eye on the potential end games. If the Russian lines collapse and the Ukrainian army begins to kill or capture 20,000 Russians on the west bank of the Dnieper River in Kherson province, or if it rolls into Crimea, which was annexed by Russia in 2014 illegally, then the risks would Be exceptionally high. I would not be surprised if we see a significant intensification of Russian nuclear signaling if and when such a moment approaches. But you're right to point out that this shouldn't overshadow the battlefield dynamics that are just as important. We're having this conversation about potential use of nuclear weapons because Russia is losing, because the Russian army is losing territory in the east, in Donbass, and is losing territory in the south, in Kherson, And its lines are looking very shaky. Its ammunition is running short. Its precision guided weapons are running short. Morale is low. Thousands of officers have been killed. Casualties, including wounded and killed, may run to about 90,000, according to some estimates. And so it's absolutely important to remember that we're having this conversation because the battlefield is changing week by week. Shashank, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Alok. Five, four,
1: three, two, one. On today's show, we've explored how the development of nuclear weapons has fundamentally changed the rules of war. Famously, many of the physicists who designed and built the very first nuclear bombs during the Manhattan Project went on to dedicate their lives to making sure these bombs would never be used after the Second World War. That included the so-called father of the atomic bomb, the physicist Robert Oppenheimer. He knew the world would not be the same. Oppenheimer was the director of the Los Alamos National Laboratory where the first atomic bomb was made. In 1965, for an NBC television program, he recalled seeing the very first test of a nuclear weapon.
2: few people laughed. few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the
1: Today, as stories of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki fade in people's memories, it's perhaps never been more important to understand the power and the implications of nuclear weapons. Our thanks to Cheryl Rofer, Patricia Lewis and The Economist's Shashank Joshi. And of course, thank you for listening. You can keep up to date with the ongoing situation in Ukraine at Economist.com. This week in our print edition, we're exploring Ukraine's economy, as well as what Russia might look like after Vladimir Putin. To read that and more, get your best introductory offer at Economist.com slash podcast offer the link is in the show notes. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Alok Cha and in London, this is The Economist.